Welcome back to the Exoteric Cleric. I'm your host, Pastor Jason Salyers, making recordings of great stories from my little friends at Hinsdale Adventist Academy. We are continuing with our book, Swift Arrow, reading Chapter 7, Warpaint and Feathers. Colored leaves, red, yellow, and brown, fluttered past George as he rode behind Woonsack and the long string of Indians and ponies. They were riding north and moving quickly. So many Indians moved along the path that George, who rode near the front of the line, could not see the end when he turned around to look. The farther they went, the more unhappy George became. For every step Nico took, it took him farther and farther from his home and from Ma and Pa. Even the fluttering leaves seemed like little hands waving goodbye all the day long. No hint of sun shone in the clouded sky, and George shivered from the cold. When Woonsack had given him the new buckskin pants and shirt, they had seemed so warm. But it had been summer then, and now a harsh, chill wind blew. When the Indians stopped in a large clearing about noon for a brief rest, George felt glad to stretch his legs. He jumped off Nico and ran around the pony in little circles trying to get warm. Then Woonsack came to him and removed the extra blanket George had strapped to Nico's back. Here, little pale-faced brother, Woonsack said, this is how wise Indians keep warm. Then he showed George how to wrap the blanket around himself and tuck in the corners so it would not fall off. Woonsack must teach you to be Indian. Where you go, soon you will want to be good Indian, Woonsack said. Then he walked away, leaving George to wonder what he meant. Where could they be taking me that I would want to be a good Indian? I am the son of a German and proud of it. Why should I want to be a good Indian? Before he had time to do more wondering, the Indians mounted their ponies and Woonsack motioned for George to go get on Nico. They continued on the northward path for hours. George occasionally took a piece of dried venison from his pack and chewed on it. He remembered how strange it had tasted to him that first day with the Indians. Now it tasted as familiar to him as Ma's flapjacks used to taste. When dark began to set in, Woonsack reined his pony in and waited for George. Little brave warm now, he asked, putting his hand on the blanket around George's shoulders. Yes, it is better, George said. George had to admit to himself that the blanket was a wonderful help. He liked the way it cuddled over his shoulders, shutting the cold air away from his body. But he would not admit this to Woonsack. To the Indian, he said, Ma used to make me warm jackets from buckskin lined with the wool of sheep. Fellow never felt cold when he wore one of them. Woonsack made no reply, but moved ahead to his place in the long line of Indians. After a ride of three days, they arrived late one evening at a little clearing, at a large clearing, that showed signs of previous encampments. Little piles of charcoal littered the ground here and there, and parts of wigwams lay here and there. Woonsack told George that they would be camping here for a few days. George wondered why, but he didn't ask. He helped Woonsack and his squaw set up a temporary shelter and then gratefully rolled into his blankets and immediately fell asleep. The next morning, George awoke about an hour before dawn to hear the sound of many pounding hooves galloping away from camp. He looked out the flap of Woonsack's shelter. Only the squaws and a few wrinkled old men remained in the camp. The old men sat around campfires as silent as still boulders. They smoked long pipes 
and paid no attention when George asked where the younger Braves had gone. Then George spotted Woonsack's squaw and asked her, Pale-faced boy, help me make fire and not ask so many questions, she said sternly, and George meekly obeyed. After George ate stew that the squaw had boiled over the fire, he decided to take Nico for a brief ride around camp. He walked to the area where the ponies had been left and called for Nico, but Nico did not appear. Then he whistled his usual whistle, but still no Nico. Why, they must have taken Nico with them. Now George felt lonelier than ever. What had caused them to go and leave him there with the squaws and the silent old men? Then a few days later, as unexpectedly as they had gone, the Braves returned. They rode into camp, laughing and talking loudly. The ponies carried huge bundles that reminded George of the ones that had carried goods from the stolen... Why, they must have taken Nico with them. Now George felt lonelier than ever. What had caused them to leave him with the squaws and the silent old men? Then a few days later, as unexpectedly as they had gone, the Braves returned. They rode into camp laughing and talking loudly. The ponies carried huge bundles that reminded George of the ones that had carried the goods stolen from his mother. As the Indians unloaded them, he discovered they contained many things that only settlers could have made. Copper pots, pretty china, some of it broken now, men's and women's clothing, and the usual assortment of stolen silverware, clocks, vases, and candlesticks. Why, they've been on a raid and have stolen this stuff from some poor settlers, George thought. That's why the squaws wouldn't tell me where they had gone and why the old men wouldn't even listen to me. But just as the anger began to rise up inside of him, George spotted his pony, Nico. Nico, he shouted and ran to the little pony. George threw his arms around Nico's neck and pressed them, pressed the smooth head against his own. So they took you with them. Well, I won't blame you for what they did because you couldn't help it. But if you could talk, then you could tell me where the settlement is and we could run there together. Then George began walking among the Indians again, watching as they inspected their bundles. He noticed that some of these braves were strangers. They looked wilder and wore more paint than the Indians of his camp. He moved closer to these visitors to get a better look and then stopped, horrified. Each of them had scalps hanging from his beaded leather belt. Some of the scalps had short hair attached to them. Some had curly hair. Others had long, waving, flowing hair. George felt sick. He had to stuff his fist in his mouth to hold back the scream of horror that wanted to escape. Then Woonsack stood beside him and led him away. Woonsack had a big bundle in his hand. He pushed it towards George and urged him to open it, but George felt too weak to hold the sack and dropped it to the ground, spilling out boys' clothes of all kinds that looked to be about his size, shoes, stockings, trousers, shirts, even a sturdy buckskin jacket. These are for you, Woonsack said and smiled gently, nudging George. Those stockings, George thought. Some poor mother worked hard to knit them for her boy, and she worked to make him warm pants and shirts and that jacket. She worked on them for many days, weeks even. Woonsack picked up the jacket and put it around George's trembling shoulders. 
Suddenly, George was filled with anger like he'd never felt before. He flung the jacket from his shoulders to the ground. He cried out in sorrow and kicked the bundle of clothes with all of his might. The Indians around him stopped their work and stared at him. Some looked surprised. Others looked painfully displeased, especially the visiting Indians. George looked around at the strange Indian faces and knew he had to escape. He began to run or run from them, heading for the woods, tears streaming down his face. He heard pounding footsteps coming quickly behind him, and he tried to run faster, but instead he stumbled over the big roots of a tree and fell. Now strong arms grabbed him from behind and hit him several hard blows across the head. George put his hands up to try to protect his head and kicked his captor with both feet. Then the warm blanket was pulled from his shoulders. With a mighty twist, George pulled free of the strong hands and turned to face an angry Indian whom he recognized as one from Winsack's tribe. I don't care, George screamed at the Indian. I don't want your dirty old blanket anyway. I hate it. The Indian just threw the blanket over his own shoulder and dragged struggling George back to Winsack's shelter. George immediately took off the beaded moccasins and threw them with his whip and belt at Winsack's feet. His Indian friend looked at him sadly but did not say a word. Not knowing what else to do, George then stepped inside the shelter and lay down to sleep. But cold winds blew into the shelter, and George could not sleep for shivering. He had no blanket to wrap himself in, and his shirt and pants were not thick enough to keep out the cold. He tried to think over what had just happened, but sleepiness finally overtook him. The next morning, George woke up to find his blanket, moccasins, whip, and belt laying by his side. Winsack must have brought them into him. Now he felt a little ashamed for the way he had acted. But he continued to think about it. He decided he had done the right thing. At least these Indians would know that he hated killing and stealing. Ma and Pa would want him to show this by the way he lived. Except, he thought, I guess I could have found a more grown-up way to show it. When he sat up, he saw Winsack sitting on the ground nearby. The Indian did not smile but motioned for George to put the moccasin and the blankets back on. George gladly obeyed, for he felt cold and stiff. His arms even looked blue. He ate a bowl of stew offered to him by Woodensack's squaw, and then picked up his belt and whip and headed for the pony corral. Once on Nico's sturdy back, George felt better. He knew the Indians would be watching him, so he was careful to keep inside of camp. I wish you could tell me where you've been, Nico, George whispered to his pony as he had done the day before. I know it wasn't your fault. You're a prisoner just like I am. You didn't want to go on that raid, did you, Nico? Oh, I hope we can run away together someday. But we'll have to wait for warm weather now. Snow will soon cover the ground, and we couldn't possibly make it then. George was glad to see when he returned to camp that the visiting Indians had left. They made him feel like Shep, his dog at home. Every time he saw war paint and feathers, George wanted to snarl and growl. The Indians broke camp again the next morning, and once more, George found himself riding miles, miles each day from sunup until long after sundown. Now Woonsack used the time they traveled to teach George some more of the Indian language. They spent long hours together each day going over and over and over the Indian words. George learned fast, and soon he would be able to understand almost anything the Indian said to him, and to their surprise, they could understand most of the Indian words he spoke. 
Sometimes, when he saw that George had grown tired of riding, Woonsack would take him aside and point out something interesting in the woods. He showed George how the squirrels stored food in holes in, in big trees for the winter. He pointed out the caves where bears slept for long winter hibernation. One time, he led George into to a little lake. Trees had been felled across the water. George looked at the stump and asked if someone had been there to cut down the trees. Perhaps a white settler has been here, George thought. Maybe Woonsack will trade me for some warm blankets or a few animals. No, little brave, Woonsack said. No man did this. Look at the right bank of the lake. What George saw was a big mound of branches and dirt with a little animal moving about on it. George had never come across such an animal before. It had a tail shaped like a flat shovel, and it was busily working mud into the walls of its lodge. As quietly as a leaf falls, Woonsack crept forward, close to the animal. George followed. This must be a beaver, George decided. Pa had told him about beavers and how they would build homes and dams across water and mud and of mud and tree and tree branches. Little animal is building his own wigwam, Woonsack whispered. He will live there with his family. Once more, Woonsack turned and quietly walked back through the trees. George turned to go too, but this time he stepped on a fallen branch and it crackled. George looked quickly at the beaver to see if he had scared it. At once the animal looked up, poised and alert. It eyed George for a second and then dived gracefully into the water. Day after day, the Indian party continued to travel. George grew sore from riding long hours, and when they did stop to rest once or twice a day, he could hardly walk. At night, after it had grown dark, they hastily made camp, building fires around which they all crowded to get warm. If a hunter had been lucky that day, they ate boiled squirrel or rabbit, or, or turkey, roasted over the fire. Sometimes they even had fresh roasted venison. But other days, when luck had been poor, they had to satisfy their hungry stomachs with the black dried venison and roots pulled from the forest. George usually felt so tired he would collapse into his blanket as soon as he had eaten and fall asleep. And often, he would dream the same dream. He would see himself running as hard as he could along the paths through the woods. After a while, he would come to paths that looked familiar and realized they led home to his settlement. Then through the trees he would spy the smooth, peeled logs of Pa's cabin. He'd run toward it with trembling hands and unlatch the wooden yard gate. As he ran for the cabin door, it would start to open, but at this point, George always woke up. Realizing that it had been a dream, he would lay still in the open air, shivering from the cold. He would quietly cry himself back to sleep. That's all for chapter 7. Join us tomorrow for chapter 8, Son of Chief Big Wolf.